Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. You are listening to a sermon series through the second half of the Gospel of Mark, entitled, Come Die With Me. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Ever since Peter in Mark chapter 8, had declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Anointed One, the true King, the Son of God. Ever since that point, Jesus has set His focus on going to Jerusalem to die. And He's invited His disciples to come with Him and die. And from Mark chapter 8... All the way through to Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been traveling towards Jerusalem. And on the way, he's been teaching his disciples. He's been preparing them for what's about to happen. And he's been teaching them about the true nature of discipleship, the true nature of being a follower of Jesus. About denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. And now they're getting very close to Jerusalem. And we read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. This image of Jesus leading the way highlights Jesus' single-minded focus and determination. This was his destiny. This was the divine plan. This was the central reason why he came. And the disciples are astonished at his single-minded focus and determination. But everyone else is afraid. Because they know what happens to people who claim to be the Messiah when they go to Jerusalem. They get crucified. You see, Jesus could have, could have had, lived until he was a ripe old age if he just hadn't gone to Jerusalem. If he just avoided Jerusalem, he would have had a very long and powerful ministry of teaching and healing and driving out demons. There would have been masses of crowds following him. He would have been writing books. He would have had his own TV show. He would have been broadcast on digital satellite across the globe. But this wasn't the reason why he came. He came to die. And so he goes with purpose, single-minded focus and determination towards Jerusalem. It's not like he's going there blindly. It's not like he doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there. No. His eyes are wide open. He's more clear about this than anything else he teaches. And we read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32 to 34. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's referring to the Romans. Who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. 
Three days later, he will rise again. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He says he will suffer. He will be killed. But even though he knows what is going to happen, he still chooses to go to Jerusalem. It's his decision. And it's a very decisive decision on his part. For this is the central reason why he came. He came to die. But why? What use is he to the sick, the lost, the downhearted, and the oppressed if the Jewish leaders and the Romans crucify him? How can he bring freedom to everyone from oppression and restore the whole world if he dies? The reasons only given at the end of the passage in verse 45. This is the first time and the only time in the Gospel of Mark that the reason is given. And Jesus says in verse 45 that he has come. The central reason for why he came is to give his life as a ransom for many. Firstly, he gives his life. No one takes his life from him, but he freely chooses to give his life. Secondly, he gives his life as a ransom for many. Now, a ransom refers to the price you pay to free a slave. And the Bible says that we are all in slavery. We are all in slavery to sin and evil and ultimately death. You see, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is upside down. Evil and sin and death rule the world. We are all in slavery. And Jesus has come to turn this upside down world the right way up. And he does this through his teaching, through his healing, through driving out demons. But ultimately and supremely, he brings freedom to everyone by dying on the cross. Well, on the cross, Jesus defeats evil and sin and death itself. So that many, so that all of us can experience freedom and forgiveness and eternal life. And the cost of our freedom, the cost of our forgiveness, and the cost of our eternal life is Jesus' death. On the cross. That's how much God loves you. God loves you so much that He was prepared to come in the person of Jesus and die for you. If you were the only person in the whole world, Jesus would have come and died for you because He loves you and He wants a relationship with you and He's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And when Jesus has finished explaining to his disciples how he must suffer and die and then rise again, how do the disciples respond? Well, the Zebedee boys, John and James, they respond by going, Excellent! Can we have the top jobs? This is the third time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection, and all three times the disciples 
respond in the wrong way. The first time Peter objects to the idea of Jesus suffering. The second time the disciples start having an argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And this time we read in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. A carte blanche request. <laughs> whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't fall for it. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit in your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now the person who sits at the left and the right of the king are the most powerful people in the kingdom. They have the top jobs. How could they ask that? I mean, what were they thinking? Well, suppose someone comes to you and says they've signed up to run a marathon. And then they say, but the 18th mile is going to kill them. You gulp. But then they go on to say, but they still hope to come through with a respectable time. Ah, they mean kill me in a metaphorical way. That's the disciples. What do you do in that situation? You probably encourage your friend, you'll be fine. We'll be there at the, at the finish line ready to celebrate with you. That's the disciples. They probably think all this talk about suffering and dying and rising again is Jesus' way of saying that the 18th mile is going to kill him, but he's still going to win the race. He's still going to become king. P possibly he, he would be thrown into prison, into a dungeon, and there might be a revolt or something, and then he would rise from the dungeon as a victorious king. So on the one hand, this is a faithful response by the disciples. They know Jerusalem's going to be tough, but Jesus said he's going to rise again. And even though they don't know what that means exactly, they do know that it means he will ultimately be victorious. And they have faith in Jesus. They believe that Jesus will ultimately be victorious. But on the other hand, it's a complete misunderstanding about what Jesus has come to do. And their understanding is clouded by their Jewish expectations and it's clouded by their own ambition. Firstly, their Jewish expectation. The Jews expected the Messiah to destroy all evil with military might. They expected Jesus to march into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and establish his kingdom and then rule the whole world. And as king, he could then bring peace to the whole world. And so they would see Jesus' suffering and death as as obstacles as mere hurdles to be overcome the 18th mile that needs to be overcome in order to win the race and become king that's not the way jesus sees it jesus doesn't see his suffering and death as a mere obstacle but as the goal he hasn't come to rise he has come to die 
He hasn't come for a crown. He has come for a cross. Sure, his death is not the end of the story. But it is the goal of the story. It is the whole point of the story. For this is the central reason why he came. He came to die. To give his life as a ransom for many. Secondly, their own ambition. They weren't able to understand what Jesus was trying to say because it was clouded by their own ambition. They were really thinking ahead to when Jesus would be crowned king of the whole world. And they were hoping that they were going to get the top jobs, that they would be sitting on the left and the right, that they would be the most powerful and important people in the whole kingdom, that they would be treated like kings. Jesus says to them in verse uh, 38, You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, Can you drink the cup I drink? And be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now the cup and the baptism refers to Jesus' suffering and death. And so what Jesus is effectively saying is, you want greatness? Well, the way to greatness isn't by grasping power, a throne. It's by giving up power through suffering and death. The way to greatness isn't by grasping a crown but by taking up your cross and following me. That's true greatness. Verse 39, we can, they answered. How naive. They don't know what they're talking about. They probably think, yeah, we prepared for a hard time. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Without even knowing it, James is martyred for his faith and John does suffer for his faith. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Very interesting. When Jesus is exalted in glory with someone on his left and someone on his right, he's not on a throne, but he's hanging on a cross. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why did they become indignant? Because they too wanted the top jobs. They became indignant. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord that's of foreign nations, lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke James and John, all the twelve, for wanting to be great. Jesus doesn't reject greatness. He redefines it. He shows them what true greatness is. And he does this by contrasting worldly greatness with true greatness. Worldly greatness is all about the ruler who lords it over the other, who has authority over the other. Worldly greatness is all about you. 
And how many people attend to you and serve you and worship you. And therefore you need to attain as much power and influence and money that you can. Because then you will be great. And by our human nature, we love worldly greatness. Now most of us aren't in really powerful positions. But we all occasionally end up in a powerful position. And all of a sudden, we're able to exercise power over others, and others are able to be our servant. For example, when we go to the restaurant, all of a sudden you become Lord and King. And you get ready to pronounce your decrees and your orders. I want this, I want that, and I want it now. I don't want that. That's too cold. Take it back. Go call your manager. And we love that feeling of power. That feeling of being really important. The feeling of being respected, which means being treated like a king. Jesus says, don't be like that. That's not true greatness. By contrast, true greatness is service. Jesus says in verse 43, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, must be slave of all. Everything in our nature, everything in our culture, everything about our ambitions, wants to be anything but a servant. Yet Jesus says, that's the way to true greatness. And when we embrace true greatness and become a servant, become a slave to all, we suddenly treat all people differently. The person who waits on us when we go out eating, our employees, whoever it might be, we suddenly don't treat them as though we're a lord and they're our servant, but we suddenly realize that they are fellow image bearers of God. And even when people serve us, we serve them. Through our respect, our generosity, and our kindness. Now if you do have a powerful position and a lot of status, there's nothing wrong with power and status as long as you don't act in an ungodly way. As long as you pursue your power and your status in a godly way. In other words, you use your power and status to serve other people. Even Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Not many powerful people say that. You see, Jesus could have been treated like royalty his whole life. He could have grown up in a palace. He could have been drinking champagne and eating caviar all day. But he came humbly. He grew up in Nazareth. He worked as a carpenter. He washed his disciples' feet. And ultimately, He died for us. That is true greatness. So how great are you? How good are you at serving other people? A couple of questions. Firstly, 
Do you humbly allow other people to serve you? A lot of people in church will say, Oh, I like serving, but I don't like to be served. If you don't allow other people to serve you, that is pride. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, but he also allowed a woman to wash his feet with her hair. You see, one of the ways we serve other people is by allowing them to serve us. Secondly, do you humbly serve others with selfless motives? Have you ever said, they didn't even send me a thank you card. They didn't even say thank you. I've been doing this for years and they haven't even noticed. Ah, so it's all about you and your glory. You see, there will be times when people should have said thank you and they should have acknowledged you, but they won't. That's an opportunity to reveal your true heart and character. Do you get frustrated and anger and full of bitterness and resentment and do you quit? Or do you say, well, it's not about me. I do this because I love God and I love people. And it's out of love for Jesus that I serve other people. Thirdly, are you prepared to do menial tasks? I'm not talking about the upfront public tasks. I'm talking about the behind the scene tasks that nobody sees, the thankless tasks like giving, lift, serving coffee, welcoming people, working with the kids, doing all the behind the scenes stuff that the deacons do. The list goes on and on. Or are you only prepared to do the upfront public things where you get immediate recognition? Or are you you're not prepared to do anything? You've just come to receive. Lastly, what motivates you? Are you motivated by receiving or by giving? Are you motivated by receiving plaudits and, uh, and recognition and pay and promotion and status? Or are you motivated by giving? By giving of your time and your money to serve other people? What motivates you? Are you motivated by making a name for yourself? Or are you motivated to make a difference in people's life? By helping people, serving people, and loving people sacrificially. See, it's so easy to fall into the trap of pursuing worldly greatness, seeking recognition, reward, and status to become a world-renowned preacher. But that's not true greatness. And as a preacher, and as someone who does an upfront ministry, it's something I always have to be on guard for. What is my true motivation? Is it to receive reward, recognition, and status? 
And there's nothing wrong with recognition. We need recognition. We need encouragement. But it must never become our goal, our motivation. For true motivation, true greatness is serving others sacrificially. They might not say thank you. They may not even know your name. But Jesus will look at you and smile and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you. That's my motivation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we read this Bible passage and we, we laugh at the Zebedee boys. We find John and James so funny until, Father, we realize it's us. Father, we confess that so often we are there eyeing out the top jobs. Father, we slip into the trap of worldly greatness, of wanting recognition, wanting reward, wanting status, wanting power. Father, we confess that we really love the feeling of power. We think it's great. Father, won't you, won't you forgive us? Father, thank you that when we look at Jesus, he radically challenges our whole perception of what greatness is. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you that he calls us out of this delusion and this deception that greatness is all about power. We thank you that he saves us from ourself and calls us to become truly great. But Father, we confess we are weak and we struggle. We need your help. Holy Spirit, won't you empower us and enable us to turn our back on worldly greatness and to pursue true greatness. To turn our backs on the crowns of the world and to take up our cross and follow you. But Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your power. We need your motivation. We need your strength. And Father, we pray that we would always, as our main motivation and goal, be wanting to please you and to hear your voice saying to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.